Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 182 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, Jimmy will be answering more of your weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Since this is the Friday after Thanksgiving, we're taking a little break and bringing you another episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Psykelet of Catholic Answers Live. So, Jimmy, what weird questions will you be answering this time? Well, first of all, I want to note that now that we've shifted to video production methodology, uh, there's a video version of this. So you can not only watch me and Dom, you can watch me and Cy uh, if you go to my YouTube channel. And while you're there, please do uh, subscribe and hit the bell for future notifications. I'm trying to grow my YouTube channel, so I, I really would appreciate it if you could do that. Um, in terms of the questions we're going to be talking about this time, we're going to be talking about weird questions based on Raiders of the Lost Ark time travel murder, where Jesus's Y chromosome came from, and what happens if you have two popes and the second one dies first, among other weird questions. Excellent. Such good questions. So let's now listen to your answers. All right. I got a bunch of weird questions for you. You ready for some weird questions? Okay. All right. This one comes by email from Christian. I know Jimmy hates prefaces to questions, so I apologize. Bear with me. I, okay. rec I recently watched an episode of Journey Home with Marcus Grodi featuring Jimmy Aiken. In that episode, Jimmy sounded more Southern than he currently does. Jimmy's Southern drawl was so charming and authentic. I miss it. So here's oh, shucks. Oh, <laughs> so here's my question. What's Jimmy's favorite meal to eat on a Friday during Lent? <laughs> nice well, non sequitur um, for the thank you, Christian, yeah. for that entertaining non sequitur. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> it varies. I don't eat a lot of fish, uh, but I do like battered fish with malt vinegar. Nice. And so sometimes for Fridays in Lent, I will eat that. Um, if I don't do that, though, it frequently will be macaroni and cheese. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Macaroni and cheese. Um, all right. Thank you, Jimmy. And thank you, Christian, uh, for that. Do you, do you feel that Christian is correct that your drawl has um, uh, been reduced in your time here in California? No, it's just entirely a question of how much I decide to use it. I uh, see. Yeah. All right. You can turn it on, turn I, it on. I use it, use it more when I'm talking to my family, for example. Uh-huh. Right. All right. Uh, Pat, by email. It's a linguistic phenomenon known as code switching. Oh, yeah, people, that's people right. change the way they speak, depending on the circumstance. Um, Pat, by email, ask this, Jimmy. Do I get to keep my tattoos after the last judgment? If you really need your tattoos, sure. <laughs> now, it, it's exactly like what you what you tell a child. Who asks if they can have their some cat. People tell about <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, um, having said that, uh, we have we would have somewhat better evidence 
for now the idea that animals don't survive death has always just been a, a an opinion it's not a church teaching it's based on a philosophical argument that some in the medieval church made and became a popular opinion that you need a rational soul to survive death and that animals don't have those so they wouldn't survive death but you can still say to a child well if you really need them they'll be there but it's just an opinion when it comes to tattoos we actually could have better evidence that tattoos might be around uh in uh in 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 the final state of things, or at least could be. And I would point to the fact that Jesus, after his resurrection, continued to have the marks of crucifixion on his body. So he, during his life, suffered a bodily alteration of an extreme kind, and that bodily alteration was still there. Now, I don't think it had to be there because he had a glorified body. So I think if he didn't want his wounds to manifest, then they wouldn't. But he at least he, he at least did manifest them sometimes, like when he appeared to Thomas and let Thomas feel the nail prints in his hand and the spear wound in his side. And so if Jesus's bodily alterations could manifest after the resurrection, then I would suppose other bodily alterations could manifest after resurrection for the rest of us, because our resurrection bodies are going to be like Jesus's. I would suppose, and this is, again, this is just opinion, but I would suppose that we will be able to manifest physically in a variety of different ways. So if you don't want your foolish tattoo to manifest, then it won't have to. Um, and there's a little, there are little hints of other such things. Uh, this is actually not from the Christian scriptures. It's from a Gnostic writing. But there's actually a Gnostic writing that talks about Jesus manifesting um, with different appearances and being seen at the same time by different people in different ways, kind of like a salt vampire, um, to where he... Uh, to one person seemed to be a young man with a short beard and to another person seemed like an old man with a long flowing beard at the same time. And so it, we may, he also manifested to the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus without them recognizing him. So who knows exactly how we're going to uh, manifest our appearances. I suspect we will not be limited to one. Uh, Pat, thanks for the email. Salt Vampire, is, is this a reference to the original Star Trek? Yes, the uh, very first broadcast episode of the original Star Trek, as a matter of fact. Oh, that was the first one that was broadcast? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. Uh, all right, Rob's got a long one uh, from email, but I think i got to read the whole thing to get the, the gist of what Rob wants to ask. Apart from Jesus' passion, would Jesus ever have gotten sick or hurt? Or would Psalm 91, which Satan quotes, apply and he would be protected? Moreover, would he allowed would he have allowed himself, Mary or the apostles to become sick or hurt, especially during his public ministry? Seems that that would be kind of bad for business since he was curing the sick. So wouldn't he just cure the sickness from himself, Mary or an apostle? Or would the sickness injury just pre be prevented altogether? Uh if so, would it be Jesus himself or the angels that would guard them from becoming sick or hurt? So with regard to Jesus himself, he was uh, born in mortal form, and that means he was not yet in a glorified state where he could not be injured. Uh, so he could 
be injured. He could suffer uh, pain, uh, as he did, for example, when he fasted for 40 days in the desert, one of the passages Rob is referring to. Uh, he, uh, he suffered the pains of hunger. He also could be physically wounded, as obviously happened on the cross. And so if you had um, a pathogen or in, in something that could hurt him, then it physically, then it could hurt him because he wasn't yet glorified. So, for example, element 33, arsenic. Well, arsenic has certain effects. It, it grabs onto certain other molecules in the body and causes havoc. And so if Jesus had, had consumed arsenic, it would have the same effect, barring miraculous intervention, that it would have on anybody else. Or if it was a virus or a, a bacterium, it would have the, it would it would have the same effect that it would have on anybody else, barring miraculous intervention. Now, because Jesus, um, we don't have any record of Jesus getting sick, but it would hypothetically be possible. What we do have, even within his ministry, is records of him suffering pain, like the pains of hunger in the desert or injury like on the cross. So if he did have miraculous preservation from fit from illnesses, it, 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 this protection didn't extend to every form of injury and it didn't apply at all times. Otherwise he would never have been able to be crucified. So uh, you could propose that maybe God protected him from, from, from physical sickness, and maybe God did because we don't have records of him being sick, but we also wouldn't claim that he was like Superman walking around invulnerable or that he had an immune system that would resist the effects of pathogens that would affect a normal person. In terms of other people, well, we don't have records of anybody getting sick, either Mary or the apostles during the earthly ministry. We do have records of people associated with Jesus getting sick and even dying before the ministry, because that seems to have happened to uh, St. Joseph. He appears to have been an older man who apparently passed on before Jesus's ministry began, which is why Jesus entrusts Mary to the beloved disciple instead of just sending her home to St. Joseph after the crucifixion. Also, we have, after his earthly ministry, apostles like St. Paul and also St. Timothy suffering from illnesses. St. Paul talks to the Galatians about how he first preached to them because of a bodily illness that he had. He needed to stop in his travels, and he recommends to Timothy that he take some wine for the sake of his stomachs because of his frequent illnesses. Apparently, Timothy had digestive troubles. And so we do have instances where suffering and illness were part of God's plan, even for people like apostles, but we don't have records of it during the ministry itself. So he he may have either protected people from getting sick at that time or immediately healed them, or they may have gotten sick and it's just not recorded. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Rob, for that question. We appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this one because I've seen the Tom Cruise movie, Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, where the Wasn't that a soap opera? Ed oh, that was Edge of Night. Edge of Night? 
I don't. But need... the edge of night is kind of the edge of tomorrow, especially if you're Hebrew and using a Jewish time reckoning then it's system. It's definitely the edge of tomorrow. Um, and then, so the aliens in the movie Edge of Tomorrow, they can manipulate time. Tom Cruise gets caught up with one of the aliens somehow, and if he dies, the day starts over again. So does Emily Blunt in that movie, uh, her character? Uh, in the movie Edge of Tomorrow, commit murder every time she kills the Tom Cruise character to restart the day? The answer is going to depend on your understanding of exactly what murder is. And that's going to go to the question of how the prohibition on murder in Scripture works. There are basically a couple of different ways that um, that philosophers and theologians have looked at the nature of commandments like this. One of them is known as divine command theory, which holds that things are wrong because God says they're wrong. And that and so if if God said Stopping another person's heartbeat is always, which is, you know, what death essentially amounts to. No matter what else is happening, we all die of cardiac arrest. Um, So if God were to say, as a matter of positive law, stopping a person's heartbeat is always wrong, then whatever Emily Blount is doing to Tom Cruise's character in that movie would constitute murder even if she were doing it for some higher purpose, like saving the world or something. Okay. On, on the other hand, divine command theory is not the most popular theory in Catholic circles. In fact, in recent history, the magisterium has strongly supported the idea that what constitutes that, that the morally obligatory nature of commands is not simply because God has said them, but because God has built principles into human nature. And when we are acting contrary to these principles, that's what a violation of divine law is. And so if that analysis is true, you'd have to look at the principles that are in play here and do they really constitute an illicit form of uh, taking life or not. Now. The magisterium in recent years has tended to root um, its prohibitions on killing in human dignity. And so you're depriving someone of something, you're doing something to someone that's contrary to their dignity as a human being, which is a gift that God has given them. The question is, well, what is that? And this is something that the magisterium really has not fully articulated yet. Even in its discussion, for example, of the death penalty, it tends to make general statements like stuff's contrary to human dignity, but it doesn't explain how. And so it seems to me that there would be room for some discussion on this question. For example, let's suppose that you have a person who you're trying to ultimately save their life, but in order to do that, you need to temporarily stop their heart. For example, oh yeah. Let's let's suppose you've got someone who has a serious heart problem and you need to do heart surgery on them. And so 
and this happens all the time, doctors in doing heart surgery will stop a person's heart so they can repair it, and then they start it back up again. And so by some standards, that person could be considered clinically dead during that period. But what you're not trying to do is utterly deprive that person of life and send them shuffling off this mortal coil. You're actually trying to do the reverse. You're trying to keep them here, even though it me and do good for them, even though it means that they're temporarily, by some standards, could be considered dead. And even if you say, well, in that situation, they're still circulating the person's blood by artificial means, we could stipulate a scenario where a person really would be clinically dead for a few minutes, but then brought back if you could just do the surgery quickly enough. Having said that, well, let's look at this movie, which, by the way, I have not seen, but I assume that there's a good reason that Emily Blount's character is killing Tom's Cruise character in order to restart a day. Well, I assume that that's to, like, save the world or something like that exactly. or some significant chunk yep. of the world. And also, she's not trying to deprive Tom Cruise of life because she knows the time loop is just going to start all over again and he'll get to relive this day. So she's not trying to send him shuffling off the mortal coil. She's just temporarily stopping his heartbeat in order to accomplish a greater good that will even help Tom Cruise because he'll get through through this crisis and will continue living after the movie's heroic, uh, satisfying, heartwarming ending. So um, it, it, based on all of that, I would say there's some room for discussion here about her whether her killing him would technically constitute murder or not based on this natural law approach rather than simply a divine command approach. Uh, thank you, Joe. really appreciate that. Let's see. Let's go next to Taylor. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Scott is next. Uh, what should we make of the up and coming problem of human composting of bod bodies versus Catholic burial? It is being implemented in Seattle and already approved by law there. So there is not, as a matter of divine law, a single mandated way of treating the remains of the dead. Because uh, they are human remains, we need to treat people with respect, but that can take a variety of different forms. And so the church historically has, uh, you know, uh, in most cultures, practiced different forms of burial, like entombment uh, in the ground. In Jesus's own day, it was common to put a body in kind of a temporary tomb and let the body decay. And then after a year or so, you come back and clean the bones and put them in a kind of repository for bones known as an ossuary. And we have lots of ossuaries from the time of Jesus. In fact, we have the one of the high priest Caiaphas that uh, we have his ossuary. He was the guy who put Jesus on trial. And we have no indication that uh, this practice was frowned upon by God. It was a standard thing to do in Jewish society. And you'll notice it didn't involve doing everything you can to preserve the body. It, the, the decay of the body was foreseen, and then you cleaned the bones. And so there's not a divine, in more recent times, the church has also, provided it's not done for reasons contrary to the faith, has also not had a problem with cremation. And so that also involves a destruction of the body. Now, it is part of Catholic culture and 
is required by church law that we then treat whatever is left over of the body in a dignified way. But divine, so you can't, uh, under current Catholic law, you can't just scatter someone's ashes in the ocean. Okay. But it's not a matter of divine it's not a matter of divine law that the body has to be kept together and preserved and hypothetically someone could say well i am trying to um you know respect my loved one by letting their body play this role in fertilizing stuff to continue the cycle of life and i could even speaking on that person's point of view, could even say, well, that's not in principle different than organ donation, where you allow parts of a person's body to be used. You take the body apart, use parts of it to help other people. And so one could make a case for this. But what I would say is that's not where we are as Catholics. That is not our tradition. That is not our custom. This would not be allowed by church law. And frankly, it would sow a lot of confusion with a high risk of an erroneous eco-spirituality. And so if yeah. I were a voter in an area where this were, was being considered, I would definitely vote against it. Having said that, I can't say that it's 100% opposed to divine law, but it's not the way that Christianity has uh, has handled these things. And I don't want to see people being misled by weird eco-spiritualities that undervalue uh, the respect that is owed to human remains. And uh, eco-spirituality involves a kind of uh, a raising of uh, the environment. Um, of nature yeah. to a level that it that is above what it actually deserves, attributing uh -huh. a kind of intrinsic value to nature that's beyond the actual value that nature has. Nature does have actual value, but it human nature transcends other created beings in the um, dignity that they have, that it has and requires. Scott, thank you for the question. Uh, up next on our this episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken, Taylor's question, how was the male seed provided to fertilize the egg, which enabled Jesus Christ to germinate? How was the DNA? Mir miraculously. I know this one. Miraculously. Okay. Then <laughs> is that it? Is that the whole answer? Well, I can go a little further. Taylor also asks, uh, how was the DNA determined for the male contribution to Jesus' zygote? The answer is we don't know. It could be that God took uh, genetic matter from Mary and modified it. Uh, and it is possible. I mean, the Y chromosome is smaller than the X chromosome. So God could have modified Mary's genetic matter. On the other hand, God could have created... Uh, an entire set of 23 chromosomes for Jesus, or even just the one Y chromosome out of nothing. Um, and so there are different options that God could use, but we don't ultimately know which of them is correct. Uh, Mark asks, what do you think the spiritual state of the Time Lord is? Before you answer, Jimmy, I have to say, this is not a question about Celtic center Robert Williams, whose nickname is the Time Lord. This is a completely oh. different Time Lord. Okay, so what's the question? What do you think the spiritual state of the Time Lord is? Or a Time Lord. I apologize. A Time Lord oh, is. Okay, well, I think it depends entirely on what we do. 
you know, if a time Lord uh, does good things and then then his spiritual state is going to be good. Like, for example, the doctor has saved many, many, many people and cultures. So that's good. On the other hand, um, the master has done many, many, many bad things. And so I think the master's spiritual state is generally going to be bad. Having said that, time lords um, are are like human beings in that they can they have free will and their spiritual state can change over time. So when after the doctor visited the first Martian colony, he decided he was the Time Lord victorious and didn't care about the laws of time anymore, he fell from grace and got his comeuppance and had to repent. On the other hand, the master um, has, uh, has varied over time, has sometimes done good things, and even as Missy repented of all of the murders, uh, that the master had committed in the past and, and became good. So, uh, time lords have free will too, and their spiritual state can go back and forth. Uh, thank you uh, very much for that question, Mark. Uh, it's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Next, uh, this one comes from Michael. Uh, given that divine revelation has provided us knowledge of invisible beings called angels and demons. And given that the fall of Adam is what threw the entire universe into discord, and given that all rational creatures are necessarily disposed to worship of God through the incarnation of Christ, what possible room could there be for the existence of an unknown, unreached race of intelligent beings on other planets not accounted for by revelation. So there are three givens there. The first one is that God has provided us knowledge of these invisible beings called angels, including the bad ones. And that would indicate that God can create rational beings other than human, other than humans. And so that would be a factor that would weigh in favor of the idea that some of these rational beings might be physical as well as spiritual, because we've got God creating rational spiritual beings like angels. We have also God creating rational physical beings like humans, and there could be other rational or intelligent uh, physical beings out there in the universe. We know we're not the only race of rational beings. And so consequently, that would tend to support the idea that there might be intelligent life on other planets. Having said that, uh, we then have the second given, which is that the fall of Adam threw the entire universe into discord. And this has been a common view historically, but I don't think it's required by scripture. What we know is that human death entered the world because of original sin. But actually, if you read people like Aquinas, they're going to say, well, that's human death that entered the world through sin. It didn't mean that all death entered the world through sin. Um, the nature of the animals, for example, Aquinas would say, did not suddenly change because of original sin. So lions would have been obligate carnivores even before the fall of man. They would have eaten other creatures and there would have been animal death before the fall. So, um, so if we can have biological and furthermore, you know, the church today obviously doesn't have a problem with evolution. And so th there could be a, as 
evolutionary science would suggest a long history of uh, of animal death in and reproduction driving forward the process of evolution for a long time before humans even showed up. Given that, you could have similar processes working on other planets. However, and you could thus have other creatures that God either created miraculously there or that he used evolution to create there or something like that. Having said that, even if we grant this given and say it was the fall of man that messed up the universe, well, then we just could have messed up other planets too. That wouldn't stop there from being intelligent creatures on other planets. We just wrecked the universe for them and for us if you grant this as a given. So it wouldn't preclude there being such creatures. Then there's the third given, which is the disposition of rational creatures to worship God through the incarnation of Christ. Well, that presupposes they know about him. Um, I would say, yeah, okay, if you've got an alien who knows that God has become incarnate through Jesus Christ, then sure, the alien needs to give God his props. He needs to declare his worth or worship him. That's what worship is, declaring the worth of something. And so aliens recognizing the infinite God in the incarnate Christ would need to worship him. Having said that, um, you know, one of the things Michael mentions is the idea of them being unreached. And actually, we have a precedent for that here on Earth. Uh, back during the first millennium, the only land that was known to Christians was the so-called old world, you know, Europe, Africa, Asia, few islands, but that's basically it. It wasn't until the second millennium AD that the so-called new world containing the Americas was discovered. And when that happened, we realized there were millions of people, namely all of the Native Americans, who had never heard about Christianity. So there can be people who are unreached for millennia after the coming of Christ. And so we originally had the old world here on earth, then we discovered the new world here on earth. And if we discover new worlds in the future that also have intelligent inhabitants, then we're going to need to reach them and teach them about Jesus Christ. They may or may not need to know about him for salvation, you know, because they may never have fallen, but uh, we wanna share the good news of what God has done for us with everybody. Uh, thanks, Michael, for that question. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Sean L., Susan R., Trevor W., Rosemarie S., and John H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Brian asks this, Jimmy, in what sense could it be said that unicorns or dragons or trolls or Captain Picard exist? So, um... We need to make a distinction here, uh, because, as Aquinas would say, because there's more than one sense in which one could say these things exist. If there are other parallel worlds or parallel timelines, 
then they could all exist there in the fullest sense. But that's up to God. We don't have evidence of those things, so we don't know what God has chosen to do. We do know he created this world in this timeline. So let's focus on that. Well, um, none of these things exist in the form they are classically imagined here in human literature, but they all exist after a fashion. So let's take unicorns. Now, when people think about unicorns, they imagine a horse with a horn on its, a single horn on its head. And okay, that could exist, but it doesn't. Uh, unless there's an occasional, you know, freak mutation somewhere. But if you go back into historical sources and you read about unicorns, like, for example, if you read the Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder, who he wrote a, a massive um, work called Natural History on on the natural history of the earth and all the different creatures that he was aware of that lived there. He was very curious about natural phenomena. So curious, in fact, he got a little too close to Mount Vesuvius in AD 69 and died. Bummer. Um, yeah, but first he wrote his natural history. And in it, he talks about um, a creature in India called a monokeros, which means um, a one horn. And according to him, the Latin translation of monokeros, by the way, is unicornus or unicorn. And according to Pliny the Elder, the unicornus or monokeros uh, was a beast that was very large and very furious. And it had one horn in the middle of its forehead. And it had a, a head kind of like a horse and a body kind of like a rhino and feet kind of like an elephant and also kind of a big tail. And, uh, and, it, couldn't, and it was so furious it like could not be captured. Uh, Heart, certainly not easily. And people have looked at that description and drawn images of it based on, his, on what he says about its physical characteristics, and they realized he's talking about the Indian rhinoceros, which does indeed have one horn that is kind of in its forehead between its nose and its eyes. And so unicorns, in that sense, have existed. Uh, and actually, they're not the only ones. Uh, now, they're the ones that Pliny the Elder was talking about, but there are other unicorns too, like the Norwell, which is a kind of cetacean sea creature that has one horn, and it swims through the sea and uses its horn for self-defense and hunting, I'm sure, and things like that. So there actually are unicorns in nature, just not the horse kind. So what about dragons? Well, um, on coincidentally, on an episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World recently on The Young Earth, I played part of a song from a creationist group, uh, creationist artist called D is for Dinosaur. And it's a really catchy song. I love this song. Um, but the thesis of the song is that in the Bible, we occasionally read about dragons, but all they are is dinosaurs. Dinosaur is just a modern word that we invented to talk about dragons, but classically they're dragons. And this is actually right. Uh, one of the things that historians have been talking about in the last 30 years is the fact that fossil discoveries are not new. 
Uh, People have been finding fossils all the way through history. And consequently, uh, when ancient people found these giant bones, they were not stupid. They said, well, there must have at one time lived this race of giant monsters here on Earth. And some of them had big, sharp teeth. And so that's the basis of dragon folklore. Um, In fact, uh, St. Augustine even talks about a giant molar that he saw that was found on a beach. And so this is uh, this is a part of history. There's also thought now that the Griffin myth may be based on the Protoceratops fossils that people were finding because Protoceratops shares certain characteristics with Griffins, including being egg-laying. Um, okay, so what about trolls? Well, trolls come in different form in Scandinavian mythology. Um, If you're wanting a naturalistic explanation for what could be at the basis of those myths, uncontacted people. Sometimes trolls are presented as basically human, but as wild, savage people who aren't Christians that live off in remote areas and can cause problems, that could be a description of a tribe of uncontacted people. So there could be a naturalistic basis for that. And then in terms of a naturalistic basis for Captain Picard, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> that, that wasn't hard on the bat on the Captain Picard thing. Uh, I believe that you were the one who told me one time that the Emperor Augustus uh, mm-hmm. had a dinosaur. He had dinosaur bones. In do you remember? Was that you that told me that or? Uh- I, I, I recall him having other creatures um, that were living. I don't recall him having dinosaur bones, although he might have. We do have records of ancient Greeks having dinosaur bones, and like yeah. sometimes they'd put them in a temple or things like that. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you very much for that question, Brian. Let's go to Gordon's question. Uh, Gordon says, a Jewish friend asks me this all the time. How could the wise men have seen the star in the east if they were already east of Judea? Well, um, so even if they were in the east, they had their own east. But Um, I I think what he's getting at is they they couldn't have followed the star east if it was. It will get there. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. There. Yeah. (laughs) What it says is that wise men came from the east and when they get there, they say we saw his star in the east. Right. Well, that could mean when we were in the east, we saw it and then we came west. Ah, yeah. Or more likely because east is a relative term. So no matter where you are on earth, you have an east and an eastern horizon What they meant was they saw the star when it rose over the eastern horizon Now, from their perspective. Now, some people have proposed, and I'm not convinced of this, but I'll mention it for the sake of completeness. The Greek phrase that Matthew uses to describe what they say is that we saw his star when it rose in Anatole. And you can translate in Anatole as just in the east, but some have proposed that this may be, in this case, it may be used as a technical term for a specific kind of rising that stars and planets have, what's known as a heliacal rising. The heliacal rising of a star or a planet is when it first appears above the eastern horizon, and it's only very briefly visible because this is the point in the year 
where um, previous to this, the star or planet has either stayed below the horizon during the daytime or it's wiped out by the sun's brilliance so that you couldn't see it because it was too close to the sun. But there comes a moment in the cycle where it's very briefly for the first time in the year rises above the eastern horizon near the sun. And some have proposed that that's what they're saying when they say we saw the star in the e when it rose in the east. They're saying we saw it at its heliacal rising. I'm not convinced that that's the case. I haven't seen enough evidence that would support that, but I think there are multiple explanations here uh, that you know serve to explain the relevant data we have in Matthew. None of it is contradictory or anything like that. All right. Uh, we got a Raiders of the Lost Ark question for you from Ryan. If the Raiders of the Ark was written to have Indy and his girlfriend open the Ark instead Marriott. of... Uh, Marion, okay, open the ark instead of the Germans, would they have died in the same ways the Germans did or not because they didn't have any evil intentions with the ark itself? Uh, answering the question as posed, it would depend entirely on what Steven Spielberg and George Lucas chose about how to end the movie. <laughs> uh, treating it more speculatively, we can't really say. We do have the now we don't have instances of the Ark melting anybody like what happens to the villains in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. We do have an instance where a man named Uzzah touches the Ark when he's not supposed to and he dies. Um, and so that could have happened. We have a biblical record of something like that happening. On the other hand, we have other instances where the Ark was captured by the enemies of Israel who were pagans and the ark didn't kill all of them and they probably didn't follow all of the procedures that the Jews did when handling the ark like having it only carried by Levites who have it on poles and things like that so um so and and so it's possible that a person who uh, is not Uzzah that was the guy that got killed, could at other times touch the ark and not end up dying. And since uh, since um, uh, Indiana Jones and Marion Ravenwood um, were, were not people of ill will, they might have fallen into that category. All right. Um, thank you very much for the Raiders of the Lost Ark question, Ryan. Um, Jim asks this, I would love to hear a layman's explanation of the immutability of God, how God is unchanging and exactly what that means for a personal God who watches over us changeable beings. So to put it in simple layman's terms, God is outside of time, and that's why he doesn't change. That's why he's unchangeable and thus immutable. Immutable means the same thing as unchangeable. Um, in terms of how he can watch over us and care for us changeable beings, the answer is he's really good at multitasking. Just like humans can do more than one thing at a time, like walk and chew gum, unless you're maybe President Gerald Ford. Um, <laughs> That's God a Chevy can... Chase stereotype, <laughs> Gerald well, Ford. <laughs> I, 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 if I, I could be mistaken, but I believe the president did say he had difficulty walking and chewing oh, he gum. Did, oh, he said time. that. Okay, all right. Maybe that's an, maybe that's an urban legend. Okay. But, uh, but humans can do more than one thing at a time. You know, you, some people 
you know, are one man bands that are playing multiple instruments at the same time. Right. Other people are jugglers and they're keeping more than one ball in the air or they're just piano players using both of their hands at once. And so God, because he's not only omniscient is aware of everything in going on in creation at once. And since he's omnipotent, he can affect everything in creation all at once. So it doesn't matter that he's outside of time and himself changeless because he's able to interact with time all in a single moment via his omni multitasking ability. All right. I think we have time for one more. Uh, Jeremy asks, what happens when you have two popes and God forbid the second one dies first? I have to say, I don't understand that question. Do you understand it? Well, you, you can never have two popes that are in office at once. There can only be a single successor of Peter at a time. I suspect he may be envisioning a scenario like uh, the one we have currently, where we have a former pope oh, who is yeah. alive and a current reigning pope. So what would happen if Pope Francis died before Pope Benedict does? Well... Uh, there would be a conclave and then a new pope would be elected because Benedict resigned the papacy. He is no longer the pope. And consequently, he would not automatically become pope again. He is he is a priest at this point um, and a bishop, but he is not a cardinal or a pope. Oh, and consequently, yeah. it's high. I mean, you could say, well, what if a future conclave in this situation chose to elect Benedict again. Well, then he'd become Pope for a second time. And there have been Popes uh, like the um, like Benedict the ninth, actually back in the in the 11th century who were Pope more than once. And he was not a great guy, by the way. Um, but uh, you can have uh, people who occupy the papacy more than once in the case of a resignation. But it would be very unlikely that uh, this would happen in the present circumstances because of Benedict's age. All right, Jimmy, thanks very, very much. Jimmy, those were some great, weird questions and great answers. Folks, join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest to 66866. Send StarQuest to 66866. Send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, next episode, we're doing another patrons oriented or another questions oriented show. A few months ago, we asked our patrons what questions they have. And so we answered them in a special patron release episode. And now we're going to share it with everybody so that you can see the benefits of becoming a patron and getting your questions answered. We're going to be talking about things like, are there sports in heaven? Uh, what about remote viewing and aphantasia and synesthesia? couple of conditions that might have a, an effect on remote viewing ability. Also, Incorruptible Saints, the Trojan War, and the famous Philip experiment, where a group of researchers invented a fictional ghost that seemed to become real. Also, uh, even if you're a patron and you've heard that, you may want to revisit it. And in particular, you may want to listen to the episode because we're going to be providing mysterious feedback on the episode where Dom and I did tests that could reveal psychic functioning. And we'll be hearing what you had to say about those tests. And so be sure and tune in next week. Excellent. 
Folks, remember to help us continue to produce the podcast. Please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you and happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>